You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. What I'll attempt to do is give you an interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount in a contemporary reading. In other words, I will try and take what has been written with the help of many witnesses, mind you, and bring it down to a place where we in 2018, as citizens of these United States living in Williamsburg, Virginia, can hear the words of Jesus with contemporary ears. And so I imagine then that if Jesus were to show up, that this is what Jesus would say to us if he were preaching the sermon from the stage. In our society where there are the haves and the have-nots, the powerful and the powerless, the winners and the losers, we have a tendency to evaluate the blessings of God with the wrong standards. We've assumed that if people are healthy or successful, rich or powerful, that they have God's blessing. But I want to tell you that the blessing of God goes to places far beyond our assumptions and imagination. First and foremost... God blesses losers. And some of you have lost people you loved and are working through heartbreaking circumstances, and the grief almost seems too much there. I want to tell you that the blessing of God rests on the house of mourning. And in a society where the loud people get all of the attention and Telling it like it is has become a virtue, but the quiet person sitting in the back of the room who has much to say but is too humble to say it, well, the blessing of God rests with them. And we assume that the blessing of God is with religious leaders, the pastors and the priests, as if they have all the answers about what God is up to in the world, but the blessing of God is with those who know there is always more to know about God and who hunger and thirst for how to get in on what He's doing. I want you to know that in this society of anger and antagonism, God's blessing rests on those who extend mercy. In a society where we are obsessed with not missing out on every opportunity that comes our way and always being included, God's blessing rests on those who know life is not about doing everything, but about setting one's life in a pursuit of doing just a couple of things with all of their heart, pure and simple. God's blessing rests on those who are relentlessly committed to making peace if there is such a person among us. I want you to know that as followers of God's kingdom, you're going to find yourselves on the receiving end of insults. You'll be harassed and slandered because of your strange way of seeing and doing things, but it's always been that way. And if you do not experience some degree of persecution, you're probably not doing it right. Because the way of life that I have summoned you to is to embrace a radically subversive 
way of life to society. And its values are threatening to American exceptionalism and nationalism, and there will be times when the people of God will be considered a threat. See, you are the salt and light in the world. And salt is good, contrary to what the doctors tell you. It is why we put so much in our food. It can make things taste better. And light, light? Well, I mean, anyone who has tried walking around in a pitch black room can tell you that light is good. Light in a dark room can reveal the obstacles and just the right salt on a good dish can bring out the flavor. You're salt and light in the world and I need you in it. Salt only does its job when it is used and light only makes a difference when it is shining. I need you in society, not hiding from it. Because you are salt and light. And look, I know that some of you have grown up with bad impressions of rules, but I, I want you to know that the rules God has given us are good and are meant to help us understand how to share in His life and in His love and in His blessing. And I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. When you understand what the law is really about, they won't oppress you. They'll set you free. Free to be the people of God. Let me give you some examples. The law says you should not murder, and I think that's good advice. But I got to tell you, the root of murder is anger. How are you handling your anger? See, when we get angry, we move to insult. And then after insult, we move to dehumanizing another. And after we dehumanize the other, it becomes much easier to inflict violence. And it is the way of the world. The way of the world that we get angry, we insult, we dehumanize, and we get violent. And look, I know we can't always do anything about the anger but we can do something about what happens after we feel it. What I want to tell you is that when you feel that anger, instead of choosing to hand out insults, immediately hold out your hand toward reconciliation. See, reconciliation is what God is about. So much so that it's more important than your worship gatherings. As a matter of fact, if you're on your way to a worship gathering and you realize that you have relationships that are held hostage to anger and insult, then you need to attend to those relationships. Worship cannot freely happen when our relationships are held hostage. It just can't. The law says you shouldn't commit adultery. Again, I think that's good counsel. But we all know that the root of adultery is lust. It's not a matter of action. It's, it's a matter of disposition of the heart. And we all know that our society has made lust an art form. The way we objectify and idolize the human body has built a culture of lust. And I want to tell you that lust is one of those things that when we embrace it, it actually ends up embracing us and holds us captive. We've got to be relentless in rooting out lust. The law says that if you're going to get a divorce, you need to get an attorney and file the right paperwork. I just want to remind you that when divorce happens, almost everybody gets hurt. And the last thing that any of you need, any of you who have gone through the pain of a divorce, the last thing you need is someone piling on top of you more pain. So I just want to say this to all of us. 
we need to get back to keeping our promises. Promises don't seem to mean much anymore. When you make a promise, you need to keep it. It's a covenant. The first thing we probably need to do is stop making so many promises to so many pursuits because we're making too many promises we can't keep and are breaking the ones we should. I want you to know that God is there. The great promise keeper and will help you keep your promises. See, because when he makes promises, he keeps them. And in our society, it's been said that if we're going to say anything important, we need to make pledges and oaths to give our word validity. And what I want to say to you is this. You need to be such a people of integrity and truthfulness that you do not have to make pledges because you keep your word. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That has become so hard in our society because we become coercive and manipulative in all of our ways and at best persuasive, and we have forgotten almost entirely how to be truthful, and we have forgotten how to let our yes be yes and no be no. And besides all this, a pledge and an oath is a promise of unconditional loyalty, and you have already pledged your unconditional loyalty to God and given Him your solemn oath to serve Him always. There's no room for any other pledges. And I've got to tell you this. You live in a society that is a get-even society. When someone insults or offends you and you try to get even and the mud starts slinging, everybody gets it on their face. And what we need to do instead of responding in kind is come up with a different way so we can diffuse the anger rather than feed it. So that we can de-escalate it rather than just escalating it. So like if somebody slaps you on the cheek, then say, go ahead, hit me again, hit me harder. If someone forces you to carry their gear one mile, say, I enjoyed that so much, can I take it too? If someone sues you for the shirt off your back, say, hey, you know, while you're at it, take my pants, they're getting a little tight anyway. I mean, there's there's a kind of playful sarcasm that simply says, I am not going to respond insult for insult and give you that kind of power over my life. And with that said, I have a hard word for you. I want you to love your enemies. See, we live in a world that has created divisions of us and them. We love the people in our own family, our friendship circles, our race, or our nation. But when you love like that, you're exactly like every other pagan in the world. Everybody loves like that. See, what separates God's people from the rest of the world is when you love people that don't love you back. And when your first response to enemies isn't revenge or getting even, but prayer. Because that's the way God loves. He sends sunshine and rain on the good and the bad, and the the generosity and hospitality of God that you have received must be extended to others, including your enemies. And if there's any hope for the kingdom of God to become tangible in this world, it will be because you trusted God enough to actually love your enemies. 
We live in a society that tells us that everything we do needs to be shared or seen with others. We take pictures of exciting moments and post them to Instagram or share them on Facebook, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it can tempt us to do the same with our good deeds. And I, and I want to tell you that when you do good deeds, don't brag, broadcast them to others. Life is more than getting attention from others in the form of likes and shares, and if that is what you're after, then ultimately that's all you're going to get. But if you do these good deeds, I want you to do them in secret. When you give, do it anonymously. When you pray, don't do it to be heard by others. Rather, go to a secret place and pray like this. O God, whose name is so holy and majesty so great, yet you still invite us to call you Father. We pray that you will fully reign on earth and in my life as you already reign in heaven. Give me enough food to eat today, and I'll trust you to do the same again tomorrow. I pray that you won't lead me into situations that are beyond my ability to handle them. Just be by my side. Hold me close so that the evil one can't touch me. And I pray that you'll forgive me and that I'll experience your forgiveness so deeply that I'll be able to forgive others. Because you need to know that God's willingness to forgive you is directly associated with your willingness to forgive others. Now I need to talk to you about your possessions. All your things. See, I've come to see that our worry is closely related to the amount of things we own. We have so much stuff. I mean, we have to protect it and take care of it. Houses need new roofs. Cars need new parts. And if we have more than one, whoa. I mean, we have to work so hard just to get enough money to maintain the possessions we have. And if we want more, more possessions, we have to work even harder to get more money, to get more stuff. And I want to remind you that, that things, possessions, stuff, it ultimately rusts. I mean, none of it's going to last. So instead of investing your entire being in more possessions, Invest yourself in something that's eternal. See, it's all about the eyes. If you have bad eyes, you know, eyes that want and want and want, then your life will become invested in the things you want. Now, of course, it doesn't help that we live in an economy where right now people are sitting in a room trying to figure out how to come up with ways to convince us to want things that we don't even know we want yet. See, Possessions can be a good servant, but it's a terrible master. You cannot serve two masters. You can't love God and money. You'll love one or the other. There's no room for both. Which brings me to my next question. Why do you worry so much? You don't have to worry. God is a generous giver. He takes care of the birds and clothes the grass of the field with beautiful flowers. And if he cares for birds and flowers, then he's going to care for you. You can quit obsessing over possessions, what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. You prayed about that already, remember? God knows you need all of that. Instead, seek first his reign in your life, his rule in your life. Set your heart there. Trust Him with the consequences. All these other things will be added to you. He'll take care of the rest. 
See, because there are really only two types of sins in the world. There's your sin and my sin. There's the sin I do and the sin you do, and one is worse than the other, and it isn't mine. See, the good news for everyone else is that we all have become the experts of pointing out other people's sins, right? Because we love them so much. And since eyes look out to others, it becomes very hard to look in at ourselves and at myself to see my own sin. So we easily become judgmental and play the victim. I have a solution. Stop. Just stop. It's killing us all, and it's slowly killing you. We're so busy pointing out all the sawdust in other people's eyes that we're missing the two-by-four sticking out of ours. Don't you know that it's impossible to see clearly when a two-by-four is blocking your vision? Instead, turn your critical eye inward and ask God to help you get it out first before you volunteer to wipe the sawdust of sin out of other people's eyes. Trust that God will help you take care of it. Because like I've mentioned before, God is generous. He's like the Father who gives good gifts. I mean, even though we are nothing like God, we know how to give good gifts. If our children ask for food, we do our best to give it. God is like that. We can trust God who give us what we need. And as we experience trust in God, His generosity and hospitality becomes our generosity and hospitality, and we begin treating others the way we would want to be treated. That is how God has designed us. There are many ways to live and treat others in our society. See, our society has a wide variety of options that can take us down a wide road. But it'll lead to a terrible end. See, the options made available to us are plenty. They call these options the freedom to do what you want and be happy. Wow, that is such a misguided understanding of freedom. Freedom isn't found on the wide road of options and self-concern pursuits. It is found on the narrow road of Jesus. And I'm asking you to say no to all those alternative freedoms and salvations and asking you to turn to the only true freedom and salvation found in Jesus Christ. But you just got got to trust Him. See, there's a lot of people out there who talk in the name of God who do not have your best interest at heart. They look like cute little lambs. Some of them are even on the TV, sell lots of books. But in reality, some of them are like wolves. See, there's a lot of false teachers. And I want to tell you that you can know the difference between a false teacher and a faithful teacher. You can know the difference by the kind of life their teaching produces. If their teaching produces anger and fear and violence and division and oppression, then it's not of God because God doesn't do things that way. Faithful teachers produce values like this sermon. And by the fruit of their lives, you will know them. But you know, they're not just false teachers out there deceiving us. Sometimes we deceive ourselves 
We think we have it all right and that we stand justified before God because we said the right number of prayers or read the right number of verses or done the right amount of religious activity, go to church, maybe even give to the poor, but somehow we become empty in our love for God and don't even really have a relationship with Him and therefore don't really even see our lack of trust and our disobedience. And that's a tragedy. We just have a lot of religious activity we're doing. And then we come to the end of our life and we come to God and say, look at all these great things I did for you and all these great things I said for you. And I went to church every Sunday that it was open. And God says, I really, I really don't know you. I don't recognize you. See, we need to cultivate a deep relationship with God out of which the good works flow. Out of which the good works flow. So we don't wake up one day to find out that we never really know the one that we've always called Lord. So, okay. It comes down to this. Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them in the practice. It's like a wise man who built his house upon a bedrock. And the winds came. And the floods rose up. And the rains came down. But his house stood in the midst of the storm. But everyone who hears my words and doesn't practice them, well, they're like the fool who built this house upon the shifting sands of the outer banks. And the winds came and the rains came down and the floods came up and crashed against the house and the house went down crashing with it. It was completely destroyed. See, my emphasis is not on whether or not you understand this sermon. My emphasis is on whether you do it or not. Because until you do it, you will never understand it. The problem with this sermon isn't whether or not we understand it. The problem is that we haven't trusted God enough to try it. Will you try it? See, for 2,000 years, the Sermon on the Mount has been hotly debated, but yet always agreed that it was the most important words Jesus ever preached. But see, that's the problem. It was hotly debated and agreed that it was important, but for many generations, it is left untried. There's nowhere in that sermon that Jesus said these words apply only until I'm crucified and risen. Paul repeats many of these same things in his epistles, man. What Jesus is doing is offering a description of what it looks like when you live under the reign and the rule of God. And he's contrasting it with what it looks like when you don't. And so I can stand up and say all the things I want to say, but my life has to look like something. And the measuring of a fruitful and faithful life 
is going to be a life that even radically imperfectly faithfully pursues the words of Jesus. So hear me carefully. This isn't about perfection. You can't do that. Christ has already perfected you in Him. You are saved by grace through faith in perfection because of the perfect words work of Jesus. But faithfulness is not perfection. It's just faithfulness. Faithfulness and perfection are two entirely different things. You've been made perfect in Christ. Now you're asked by God to go live like that, to go faithfully pursue that life. You've been made holy in Christ so that you can now learn how to live a holy life. That is our task as the people of God. And every week we get together, we sit at the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus, and we thank God that we don't have to keep the Sermon on the Mount in order to have a relationship with Him. But then we remember from God that because we have a relationship with Him and the Holy Spirit inside of us, we should pursue the life of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just faithfulness. Because you think about what would happen if the people of God took it seriously enough to where we stopped buying into the idea that only the rich and successful were blessed. Or that we should blow enemies up rather than love them. Or that we should just pick our toys up out of our toy box and run when it gets hard rather than pursue reconciliation and do that hard work too. It would be a different world. I think that's why Paul taught this himself in his letters. And I invite you to read your scriptures and know for yourself and decide. Will you be the wise person who built the house upon the rock or the foolish person who built the house upon the sand? Because Jesus said the difference is the person who hears these words and practices them or the person who doesn't. I thank God that He has made us right before Him, but loves us and the watching world too much to ask us just to sit on our hands and do what is easy. Love always does what is right, not what is easy, which means it's always going to do what is hard. Maybe that's why Jesus said narrow is the way. Narrow is the way. But certain is life with God through Christ. And if we can get that, if we can be gripped by grace, then we can live gracious lives. If we can be gripped by forgiveness, then we can live lives that forgive. If we can be gripped by hospitality of God being welcomed into His life, then we can be gripped by extending hospitality to others. If we can be gripped by the fact that while we were still enemies with God, He loved us, then we can be gripped by conviction to learn how to love enemies. We can be gripped by the love of the Father. And if we are, we'll be gripped by the desire to reflect that love to others.